0: Hello, I'm Michael Novogratzik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today's Tuesday, July 19, 2016. This week, 18 years ago, the IRS Restructuring and Reform Act of 1998 was enacted, more specifically on July 22, 1998. The bill initiated a huge overhaul of the IRS, and it created the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, or TIGDA, to oversee IRS activities activities that include administration of the various tax credit programs. One recent TIGTA audit was of the historic tax credit program. Regular listeners may recall we covered some of the highlights of that report in our June 7th podcast. In that report, TIGTA recommended that the IRS develop ways to ensure that all claims of historic tax credits are valid. To start off our podcast this week, in our general news section, I'll talk about the Republican and Democratic conventions and what each party has outlined as its priorities as they relate to affordable housing and energy policy. I'll also discuss new Community Reinvestment Act regulation guidance and what one particular change could mean for the historic tax credit community. In our local Tax Credit section, I'll share big news on two pieces of legislation. One bill would greatly expand the long income Housing Tax Credit and make numerous enhancements to the program while the other makes significant changes to several housing programs, especially HUD's Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program. Then, I'll talk about a new Housing Choice Voucher fee formula proposed by HUD that could make administration of vouchers more efficient. In New Markets Tax Credit news, I'll discuss how new rules issued by the Department of Agriculture would align USDA's Business and in- Industry Guaranteed Loan Program with New Market Tax Credit leverage and Qualified Low-Income Community Investment Loans. In our Historic Tax Credit section, I'll share news about the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation's newly appointed and reappointed members. And I'll close out with renewable energy tax credit news, where I'll outline one federal bill that would eliminate the wind production tax credit two years earlier than scheduled, and another bill that would go the opposite direction and create a new investment tax credit for energy storage. If you're ready, let's get started. As you've heard by now, presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump last week announced his vice presidential running mate, Indiana Governor Mike Pence. This announcement came just in time for the Republican National Convention, underway this week in Cleveland, Ohio. Meanwhile, Democrats will hold their convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania next week. Last night, Republicans did release their long-anticipated platform draft, and they did approve it by voice vote. Although platforms are not binding documents for either the Republicans or the Democrats, they do reflect the collective thoughts and beliefs of each party, or at least the party regulars. And many are paying attention to what the Republican and Democratic platforms might indicate about each party's priorities. In terms of housing, the GOP platform generally calls for the federal government to have a reduced role in the housing market. The platform specifically argues that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and I quote, have a corrupt business model, close quote, and should be dismantled. Republicans did acknowledge, though, that rental housing costs have skyrocketed, and that nearly 12 million families spend more than 50% of their income on rent. However, the platform for the most part focused more on home ownership than rental housing. In terms of energy sources, It's not too surprising that the Republican platform is pro-coal and intends to eliminate the Clean Power Plan, which is a policy that limits carbon pollution from power plants. However, the GOP said it supports the development of all forms of energy that are marketable in a free economy, without subsidies. The plan said it encourages development of cost-effective renewable energy sources, including wind, solar, biomass, biofuel, and geothermal, but by private capital. Looking at the Democrats, they released a draft of their platform on July 1st. The draft Democratic plan calls for expanding incentives and easing local barriers to build new affordable housing in areas of economic opportunity. More specifically, Democrats said they would substantially increase funding for the National Housing Trust Fund and the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Democrats also favor providing more federal resources to housing low-income families people with disabilities, veterans, and seniors. On energy issues, Democrats did say they would eliminate subsidies for fossil fuel companies while defending and extending tax incentives for clean energy. Now, regarding tax reform, I covered this topic in my Washington Wire column that will, will be available in the August issue of the Novigrad Journal of Tax Credits. In other news, the federal bank regulating agencies that make rules for the Community Reinvestment Act, issued final revisions to the document that provides guidance on their regulations. The agency's updates were for a document that's called Interagency Question and Answers Regarding Community Investment. This document is often referred to as the CRA Q&A Guidance. The revisions include some important news for the historic tax credit community. Maybe the most significant change would expand and clarify when CRA consideration can be made for loans to or investments in historic tax credit properties. Historic tax credit proponents had asked for such investments to be presumed to qualify for CRA consideration if they are located in low and moderate income areas that are also designated federal, state, local, or tribal economic development districts. While the agencies didn't agree with that, They did rule that when historic tax credit investments relate to community development as defined by the guidance, CRA consideration should be provided. Now, this is good news for the historic tax credit community, since it will encourage financial institutions to invest in those historic tax credit properties, which should greatly expand the potential investor base and improve historic tax credit equity pricing. Now, the revisions listed several examples of historic tax credit projects that could be eligible for CRA consideration, including those that create or retain jobs in lower-moderate income areas, that create affordable housing or community services, and revitalize or stabilize a designated disaster or distressed area. There were also other examples. The final revisions also included references to CRA eligibility for investments in new markets, tax credit-eligible community development entities, community development financial institutions, or CDFIs, and for low-income housing tax credit properties. You can see the revisions at Novagrad and Company's new website, which includes an expanded CRA Resource Center. The address, though, remains the same www.novocode.com. In Affordable Housing News, a new comprehensive affordable housing bill was introduced in the Senate last week. The legislation, S 3237, is a follow up to Senate Bill 2962, which was introduced in May by Senators Maria Cantwell of Washington and Orrin Hatch of Utah. The new legislation, Senate Bill 3237, also has Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon as a co-sponsor. Now, Cantwell and Wyden are Democrats, while Hatch is a Republican, who is also chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and Wyden is the top Democrat on the Senate Finance Committee. I should note the earlier bill has six additional co-sponsors, including Wyden. Now, like Senate Bill 2962, Senate Bill 3237 is also called the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act of 2016 and the bill includes all the provisions in the earlier legislation. However, it adds 17 more improvements to the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. Now, as you likely recall, the three provisions in the first bill were a 50% increase in Low-Income Housing Tax Credit allocations, phased in over five years, and then second, an option for property owners to use income averaging over an entire development, such income averaging would make it easier to build and rehabilitate apartments in rural communities, areas with high housing costs, as well as promote greater income mixing in low-income community revitalization efforts. Now, the third provision that was in the original bill and in this bill was a permanent minimum 4% rate for low housing tax credits that are used to finance the acquisition of property or those generated by tax-exempt bonds. Now, the improvements that are included in Senate Bill 3237 are all aimed at providing more resources, increasing the financial feasibility, facilitating the preservation of existing housing, or streamlining the use of the low-income housing tax credit. The bill, more specifically, gives allocating agencies discretion to provide a 50% basis boost for apartments that target extremely low-income renters. It also gives allocating agencies the option for a 30% basis boost for tax-exempt bond finance developments that are outside of qualified census tracts, and difficult to develop areas. It also includes relocation cost on a eligible basis, which is consistent with the treatment of other similar costs. Now those are just three. There are, of course, 14 other provisions. For a summary of all the provisions in the bill, you can go to my blog post. Simply go to the www.nivico.com website, and you'll find the link to my Notes from the Nivico blog on the right tab. Click, and you'll be there. Now, Senate Bill 3237, would also change the name of the program to the Affordable Housing Tax Credit. Peter Lawrence, my colleague in Washington, D.C., says that the first bill will remain the main focus for Affordable Housing Advocates to push for co-sponsors this year, but this recent legislation is significant. Peter points out that the provisions in this newly introduced bill update and allow the Long Housing Tax Credit, I guess I should say the Affordable Housing Tax Credit, to better address the nation's affordable rental housing challenges. With Congress likely to continue extensively debating tax reform into next year, this bill provides a set of bipartisan proposals to modernize the long-term tax credit if and when Congress does examine those issues. You can read the bill at www.taxcredithousing.com. Other legislative news that made headlines last week was the passage of the Housing Opportunity Through Modernization Act of 2016. The Senate voted to send the housing bill to the President's desk unanimously last Thursday. The bill had passed the House with no opposition in February, and the President is expected to sign the bill soon. Among other provisions, the bill would expand the ability of a housing authority to project-base its vouchers. More specifically, a housing authority could project-base up to 20% of its authorized number of vouchers instead of 20% of its budget authority under current law plus an additional 10% of vouchers to assist seniors, veterans, and certain other types of households or in areas where tenant-based vouchers are hard to use. Also, under the legislation, vouchers may be project-based in 25 units or 25% of units in a property, whichever is greater. In low-poverty areas, vouchers may be project-based in 25 units or 40% of units of a property, whichever is greater. Now, another provision would protect Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher holders from displacement due to fair market rent fluctuations. The bill also includes good news for low-income housing tax credit property owners. The legislation would help facilitate the use of project-based vouchers and low housing tax credit properties by extending contract terms from 15 to 20 years. As I said, the President is expected to sign the bill soon. Speaking of the Housing Choice Voucher Program, HUD this month proposed changing how it determines the amount of funding that a public housing agency will receive for administering Housing Choice Vouchers. HUD says the change would better reflect how much it costs to administer the voucher program. Currently, administrative fees under the voucher program are based on the number of vouchers under lease and a percentage of the 1993 or 1994 local fair market rent with an annual inflation adjustment. Now, the new rule proposes an ongoing administrative fee that would be based on six variables. Program size, wage rates, benefit load, percent of households with earned income, new admissions rate, and sixth, a percent of assisted households that live a significant distance from the public housing agency's headquarters. Now, fees would be calculated each year based on the six factors, as well as a revised inflation factor. Now, I should note, the proposed rule would give HUD the flexibility to give housing agencies additional fees to address special program priorities, such as the HUD Veterans Affairs Supportive Housing, or VASH program. The rule would also eliminate billing of administrative fees between PHAs under portability procedures. The procedure currently requires billing of, quote, port-in admin fees between PHAs, which is a time-consuming Process and inefficient. Under the proposed rule, receiving PHAs would receive 100% of their own administration fee directly from HUD for port-in vouchers. On the other end, initial PHAs would receive 20% of their admin fee also directly from HUD for vouchers that are port-out of their jurisdiction. So how would the proposed rule ultimately affect public housing authorities? Many of you know that over the past several years, PHAs have had less funding to administer the Housing Choice Voucher Program. As such, many PHAs have reduced their leasing and or opted to give up their Housing Choice Voucher programs completely. This obviously goes against the core mission of PHAs to provide affordable housing to eligible families. My partner, Rich Larson, in our Toms River, New Jersey office, says that if the proposed rule works as intended, it can help PHAs provide a more adequate supply of quality affordable housing to the communities they serve. Rich says that if the rule can provide more equitable funding and a variety of supplemental fees that incentivize PHAs to lease up eligible families in targeted areas, then the Housing Choice Voucher Program has the potential to succeed in those areas. Comments on the proposed Rule are due October 4th. In new markets tax credit news, The U.S. Department of Agriculture last month issued new rules under its Business and Industry Guaranteed Loan Program, rules designed to expand access to capital in rural areas. As many listeners know, the B&I Guaranteed Loan Program provides loan guarantees to banks and other approved lenders for private business financing in rural areas. The USDA said the new program rules are expected to increase lending activity, business opportunities, and jobs in rural areas and the new rules have a section focused on the New Markets Tax Credit. The main takeaway is that the rule creates synergy between the New Markets Tax Credit and USDA B&I guarantees. The rule allows the USDA loan guarantees to be provided to New Markets Tax Credit Leverage Loans, as well as Qualified Low-Income Community Investment Loans, or QUILICI loans. I should note that eligible leverage loans cannot originate from lenders affiliated with the Community Development Entity. Also, eligible Quillickey loans must originate from a community development entity approved by the USDA. CDAs requesting approval have to apply to the USDA. Now, on a more technical but significant note, Quillickeys that are subordinated to the guaranteed loan can be considered equity when calculating tangible balance sheet equity. My partner, John Shreddy, in our Dover, Ohio office, notes that rural businesses benefit greatly by this rule, that allows New Market Tax Credit equity source subordinated colloquies to count as equity. That's because many rural businesses do not have sufficient equity to otherwise qualify for the USDA-guaranteed financing. These new rules are effective August 2nd, and Novogradic will explore the new rules in more detail in an article in an upcoming issue of the Journal of Tax Credits, as well as in a panel at the New Market Tax Credit Conference in New Orleans in October. If you have any questions in the meantime, Please contact John Shreddy in our Dover, Ohio office. In historic tax credit news, three members of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, or the ACHP, were sworn in during the group's summer business meeting last week. The new general member, appointed by President Barack Obama, is Jordan Tannenbaum. Tannenbaum was a staff member of the ACHP in the 1970s and 80s and has been the chief development officer of the US Holocaust Museum since 2004. Over the years, he has held senior fundraising positions for several groups, including the National Trust for Historic Preservation. President Obama also reappointed two other members to the council. One is Terry Gwynn, a designer and architect who is the president and principal of a Chicago-based consulting firm. The other reappointed member is Dorothy Lippert, who is a case officer in the Repatriation Office of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of National History. The Advisory Council is an independent federal agency that meets quarterly and advises the President and Congress on National Historic Preservation Policy. The policy recommendations of the group will be especially important in the coming months as next year's new Congress and new President prepare for tax reform. In renewable energy tax credit news, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee introduced a bill last week that would end the production tax credit this year. That would be two years earlier than it's scheduled to end in 2019. Alexander has opposed efforts to extend the production tax credit since he joined the Senate back in 2003. This latest bid to end the production tax credit is part of a bill that would provide additional funding for the Department of Energy's Office of Science. Funding for the Office of Science would be increased by the $8.1 billion saved by ending the wind production tax credit two years sooner. As you know, the wind production tax credit is scheduled to expire at the end of 2019. That includes a gradual phase down by 20% a year starting in 2017. Alexander has introduced legislation to end the production tax credit during previous sessions of Congress, none of which have passed, and during a hearing about the Department of Energy's budget last year, he proposed this move. Last week, he finally introduced it as legislation. There were no co-sponsors to Alexander's legislation, but it was referred to the Senate Finance Committee. The bill number, if you're interested, is S3169. Another legislative news, A U.S. Senator from New Mexico introduced legislation last week to create a 30% investment tax credit for energy storage. Senator Martin Heinrich, a Democrat, introduced the Energy Storage Tax Incentive and Deployment Act of 2016. This bill is similar, but not identical, to one introduced in the House in May. Heinrich's bill has seven co-sponsors when it was introduced. The bill would apply to both large grid-connected energy storage systems, and smaller systems for residential properties. Systems would be eligible for the same 30% investment tax credit that other renewable energy technologies receive now. They would also include the gradual phase-down, starting in 2019, that was part of the investment tax credit extension that was passed at the end of 2015. Under Heinrich's legislation, no credits would be issued after December 31, 2026. The tax credit would be in effect for property, place, and service starting at the beginning of this year, 2016. The bill would also expand Section 25D of the Internal Revenue Code to create a 30% investment tax credit for residential energy storage equipment. This proposal was referred to the Senate Finance Committee, and you can see the bill at www.energytaxcredits.com. Again, it's called the Energy Storage, Tax Incentive, and Deployment Act of 2016, or Senate Bill 3159. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. And a quick reminder, the Novigradic low term Tax Credit Year 15 webinar is tomorrow, Wednesday, July 20th at 1 p.m. The webinar provides an overview of options available to low-income housing tax credit property owners when the 15-year compliance period comes to an end. The webinar will be led by my partner, Nicolo Panoli from our Portland, Oregon office, and Mark Sween from Dominium. Don't miss it. You can sign up today at www.novaco.com. That's it for now. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradick and Company LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogradick and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.